When 32-year-old mother of one, Carmen Thomas, was reported missing, her case instantly captivated the entire nation. The news media plastered websites and newspapers with photos of the South African beauty who lived in the upmarket suburb of Remuera here in Auckland. By the time she was reported missing, Carmen hadn't been seen in person for more than two weeks. Investigators described a vivacious girl who loved to party. They also revealed to the news and to the public that Carmen worked as an escort, so it was possible that she'd come to harm through her work. However, as the investigation continued and the truth surrounding the mysterious disappearance of Carmen Thomas came to light, the details of what happened to this poor woman would make it one of New Zealand's most high-profile and grisly crimes that the nation has ever seen. Hello and welcome back to my channel. My name is Jenny Eastwood and I make videos about true crime cases pretty much entirely from New Zealand. So if you're interested in true crime and you're keen to hear about some stories and cases that you probably haven't heard of before and that most other true crime creators haven't covered, then I highly suggest you subscribe because you will not be disappointed. Today's video is a deep dive on a case that we touched on in my last video. If you missed that one, then you can go back and watch it. Basically, it covered a few different cases of people who have unfortunately wound up in the Waitakere Ranges. And today's story is the full picture, the complete blow by blow of honestly one of the worst cases I've ever heard in my life. And at the time that it happened, this one really resonated with me. For some reason, it just particularly struck me. I was in high school at the time. It was probably because it was really high profile. It's no denying that Carmen Thomas was a very beautiful woman. So of course that made it extremely newsworthy for all the different media outlets. And there was a lot of coverage about it. So I felt like I really followed the story right from day one. And of course, as the truth came out and the details of what happened to poor Carmen were revealed, whew, man, that's the kind of thing that really stays with you. And I just can't even imagine how difficult it must be for Carmen's family having her story be so high profile. And so I really hope that today I do this one justice. It is such a sensitive case and Carmen and her family deserve only the best. So I will do my best to handle this with as much respect and delicacy as possible. Now, just a heads up, this one is going to be a long one. So sit back, relax, grab a drink of water and let's dive into it. So today's story begins in the small town of Benoni, which is about 26 kilometers east of Johannesburg in South Africa. Carmen Thomas was born on Sunday, October the 30th, 1977. And when she was three, parents Neville and Teresa Scott decided to move the family to the busy port city of Durban. Right from childhood, Carmen displayed a bubbly, playful, outgoing personality. Her mother said she had a magnetic presence and loved the camera from an early age. She was never shy to strike a pose. 
friends and family all painted a very consistent picture of Carmen. She was loud, impulsive, fearless, and had a talent for making friends wherever she went and occasionally leading them a little bit astray. When Carmen was just 10 years old, her father Neville sadly passed away. Now, it's said that his passing deeply, deeply affected her, and it sounds like it affected the whole family as well, because her mother, Teresa, decided to relocate to Whitby in Yorkshire in the UK so that she could be closer to her extended family and really recover during this time. And once they got to the UK, Carmen settled in really well. Of course, she had a gift for making friends wherever she went. So it was not a big surprise that very quickly she had a new group of friends surrounding her and she really, really thrived in the UK. She thrived so much, in fact, that when Teresa Scott decided to move the family back to South Africa, Carmen chose to stay on until she could finish her schooling in the UK. And while she stayed on in the UK, she decided to live with various different friends and family. And when she turned 17 and completed her GCSE exams, she started making her move to the Big Smoke in London. But before she moved there, she didn't go directly to London. She stopped at Cornwall along the way. And sadly, when she was 23, Carmen was actually diagnosed with bowel cancer, which is pretty crazy. That is not anything small. And she went through chemotherapy and treatment before returning to university to complete a master's degree of marketing at Southampton. And I really wanted to find more information about Carmen's early life, her childhood, and especially how she coped with such a intense diagnosis at such a young age. But there really isn't a lot of information out there, sadly, about that. So if anybody knows Carmen and wants to Tell me some more about her. I would love to hear it because she really, really sounds like such an incredibly bright, beautiful person. And the fact that she went through something like bowel cancer at just such a young age, came through that and just immediately went back to kicking life's ass, I think is so inspiring. And just that is a kind of resilience and grit that is so rare to find. Anyway, once Carmen completed her master's degree, then she finally wound up in London. And I can just imagine how she would have absolutely flourished in London. London was not ready for Carmen. She is so bright and outgoing and lively that you can really see how she would absolutely shine in a place like that. However, as fate would have it, London is where Carmen would meet a Kiwi civil engineer by the name of Brad Callahan. Bradford James Joseph Callahan was born in Fakatani in April of 1978 to parents Philip and Jennifer. Now, that's kind of creepy because I'm from Fakatani. That's where I grew up. And it just gives me the heebie-jeebies to know that that's where he's from too. It just... I know our paths never crossed, but just knowing that just makes me uncomfortable. Anyway, Brad graduated from the University of Auckland with a degree in engineering in April 2001. And according to the New Zealand Herald, he worked in Australia for a little bit before traveling to the UK. Carmen and Brad apparently met on a night out, and it sounds like their relationship moved 
very fast. The couple moved in together in a small flat in Rains Park, which is in South London. However, Carmen's friends say that the relationship was pretty rocky and volatile right from the start. And apparently when they learned that they were going to be having a child together when Carmen fell pregnant, they really tried to make it work. And when their little son was born, they were still together, but ultimately they decided they were better off apart and ultimately decided to call it quits. They broke up shortly after their son was born in March 2005. Now, despite the complicated family dynamics, when Brad told Carmen he wanted to move back to his home country of New Zealand, Carmen actually made the decision to follow him because she really wanted their child to have both of his parents in his life when he grew up. So Carmen followed Brad to New Zealand and they settled in the suburb of Remuera, which is pretty upmarket. And they chose Remuera so that their son would be able to go to high decile schools. He'd be in the right zone for them. And apparently Carmen and Brad lived within just two and a half kilometers of one another. So it was really easy for them to co-parent and go back and forth. It's said that apparently Carmen and Brad co-parented extremely amicably and things worked really well, better than it did when they were together. Brad was described as a doting father and Carmen as a devoted mother who would do anything for her son. Brad soon found a new girlfriend, Tanith Butler, and she moved in with him and actually fell pregnant just a few months before Carmen went missing. Carmen had explained to their son that he was going to have a new brother or sister and that she'd even met Tanith and everybody got along really well. Her friends and family were in awe of how amicable and mature and reasonable the entire modern family situation was. While Brad was working as a structural engineer, Carmen actually took a job as an escort working at a gentleman's club in the suburb of Pakaranga. Some reports say she went by the name Sam, others say she went by the name Misty. Either way, doesn't particularly matter. Now, a thing about Carmen's disappearance in the case of Carmen is that pretty much things played out in real time on Facebook. There was a Facebook group set up when Carmen went missing. I actually joined it all those years ago, and I guess it's 13 years now, oh, which means he's probably getting out of jail, so we'll get to that later. I joined that group, and there's about 2,000 people in it. It's closed now, but people are still posting and still active. And at the time, in the group and on Carmen's Facebook page, it was like real-time updates of the case where you could see what was happening in like a time lapse. And anyway, when friends and family did eventually find out through the media about Carmen's job, before Brad was a suspect, he was telling people that she, yes, she used to work as an escort, but he had made her give it up because of their son Jack. And I just think that's an interesting anecdote because your ex-partner and your current partner, your partner in general, should never make you give something up. So just a little interesting red flag, I suppose, to sh foreshadow what ultimately happens next. However, in addition to her job 
working at the Gentlemen's Club, Carmen obviously had a natural stage presence about her, and apparently she'd actually just landed a speaking role on the Racy television series Spartacus, where she would be starring, I suppose, or on screen alongside Lucy Lawless, who is one of our most famous New Zealanders, otherwise known as Xena Warrior Princess for my millennials watching. But then everything ground to a halt on July 13th, 2010, when Brad reported Carmen missing to the police. Good afternoon, please, communication. Yes, hi, it's Brad Cullen speaking. Um, uh, Carmen Thomas, uh, she, was, she was due back yesterday to pick up her son and she never turned up. Um, I've been tr- trying to ring her all week and haven't been, been able to get hold of her. Okay, um, what relationship but, are you to her? Um, I'm, uh, we, we have a son together. Okay, so an ex-partner or? Yeah, ex-partner, yeah. Now, as mentioned at the beginning, when Carmen was actually reported missing, by that time she hadn't been seen for two whole weeks and friends and family knew that there had to be something gravely, gravely wrong for her to go two weeks without so much as a text message or a phone call to her son, who she absolutely lived for. There's no way, there's nothing on the face of the planet that could have kept her from her child. Because of this, because of how out of character it was, police wasted no time launching a full-scale investigation. They realized the seriousness of this missing persons case and they knew that they had to act quickly. Dubbed Operation Keppel, police began by trawling through thousands of hours of CCTV footage trying to ascertain any and all details of Carmen's last known movements. Footage released to the media showed Carmen entering a day-night pharmacy in the suburb of Newmarket on the main street of Broadway on June 25th, shortly after 6pm. She was seen wearing a black long sleeve top, a grey skirt, black boots and a purple scarf. So she walks through the door and just a few minutes later she makes a purchase and away she goes. Then two days later, police shared CCTV footage of Carmen's last known sighting at Countdown Green Lane. Countdown is a supermarket chain here in New Zealand, currently going through a very expensive rebrand to be named back to its old name, Woolworths. But anyway, it's a supermarket. She was last seen on CCTV footage there on the 27th of June at around 10 past seven. She was wearing a beige colored jacket and the same purple scarf with her hair pulled back. This was also the same day that Carmen's bank account was touched. Now, that's an important detail because that's really how police were able to narrow down a window of time when she was last active. Now, more interestingly, Carmen's black Nissan Pulsar car was found abandoned in the city of Hamilton, which is about an hour and 20, hour and 30 minutes drive from Auckland. Inside the car contained some personal items, including cash. Now, this is where the detail about Carmen's work alias is kind of interesting because apparently according to a TV show called Forensics, which did an episode on Carmen's case, there was a note inside the car, an envelope containing a handwritten note saying something about paying you back, paying someone back 
love Misty or from Misty XOXO and there was cash inside that. Now it's said that Carmen owed some money to her boss at the gentleman's club and this was how she was going to pay it back. So at this stage kind of looked like perhaps she'd driven to Hamilton for something to do with work and she had come to meet harm that way. Whatever the case, her car was actually found and picked up by the Hamilton City Council on the 5th of July and then when police learned of the report of her disappearance, they recovered it and brought it back to Auckland on July 13th. Now, in the first few weeks of the investigation and the inquiry, police were very, very open with the media and the public about the details of the case and the disappearance. They were freely feeding information to the public, which is how I really learned about it. It was kind of inescapable at the time. And looking back now, I think it's interesting to consider how public and popular the story was, mainly because of the detail of Carmen's line of work. Often there are so many cases of sex workers whose stories just are not told and people don't care about them and they're not picked up by the news. And so I find it really interesting that Carmen's case was picked up and given so much publicity when normally the media don't care. They should care, but they often don't. And this was 13 years ago, mind you, as well. We've come a long way since then, but still not far enough. There's still work to be done. But I guess when I think about it, it had all the makings of a riveting news story. It definitely helped that Carmen was a beautiful woman. It had the suspicious disappearance, this scandalous occupation, this interesting modern family dynamic. And so I suppose that is what made it so newsworthy. I don't know. It still interests me, though. So anyway, every single day, the news led with some sort of update about Carmen's case. But for a very long time, there were no updates, no meaningful updates anyway. It was just what the police were doing in response that day. So part of the investigation included police sifting through CCTV footage from over 100 bars in Hamilton. Now, if you know anything about Hamilton, and I lived in Hamilton for a while, it's basically... If you are a uni student, it's where you go to drink and party when you're at uni. It's fine if you're like going through O week, I guess. But anyway, police said that they didn't necessarily think she'd been to any of the bars, but it was just part of the due diligence of ruling things out. Apparently, even at that stage, there wasn't anything to suggest that Carmen herself had actually gone to Hamilton. Just because her car was there, they already thought it seemed suspicious right from day one. At that time too, police told the news and the media that they were considering searching the Waikato River, but they would need a very good reason to do so because that would be a major operation. The Waikato River is the biggest river in New Zealand. And to do that, it would have cost so much money, a lot of time and resources. And honestly, you know how we did a video about the Waitakere Ranges? Well, I feel like there's a video for the Waikato River 
because God knows how many bodies have been lost to the currents of the river, which are notoriously strong. I don't know if you'd ever consider this, but if you're thinking about going swimming, do not because you will drown. Now, something else that was interesting to police is they discovered that there had been text messages sent from Carmen's phone after her last known sighting. And this included a text to her boss on July 3rd, don't really know what the details of that text are, but there were also Facebook messages that she had sent around the same time as well. Now, although police didn't actually announce this, the news picked up on it. They found out all sorts of information about this case long before the police announced it. I'd love to know who their source was. But anyway, meanwhile, back in Auckland, two dogs and a search and rescue team searched the Oraki Basin, which was behind Carmen's home, which was on Napuhi Road in Remuera. They also searched the Yekepa Bush Reserve. Now, apparently within the search and rescue team, they had cadaver dogs and everything. So they really had like the full kit and caboodle going round trying to establish that something bad had happened right from day one. Like, this is an interesting thing to note as well, and something we'll talk more about later, is the scale of the inquiry and the search was possibly more than what you would expect for a regular missing persons case, which suggests that police knew something that they weren't sharing. Now, despite all of these efforts, the search in Hamilton, searches around Carmen's home area, a month into the investigation, there was still no sign of Carmen and things were looking pretty bad. She'd been missing for a month and there were still no clues. Her bank accounts remained untouched. So at this stage, police arranged for Carmen's mother, Teresa Scott, to fly to New Zealand from South Africa. When she arrived, she participated in a press conference held by the police where she made a very emotional desperate plea for any information leading to the discovery of her daughter. If Carmen was watching, she just wanted her to come home. And she reiterated how Carmen's son missed his mother and badly needed her to come back home. She said, quote, I broke down and cried myself to sleep on a few nights. I just want her to come back safe and sound. She's a good mom. She's not the kind of person who would just leave her son. So at this point, the Operation Keppel team was still drip-feeding information to the public, and they revealed that Carmen's cell phone, wallet, and car keys had disappeared, along with a distinctive turquoise handbag that she was always seen with. The handbag was nowhere to be found. It wasn't in her house. It wasn't in her car, and... Police and her friends and family felt that it was probably with her. It was unusual that she wouldn't go anywhere without it. And of course, as one would expect, police had also spoken at length to Carmen's partner, Brad. Quote, We've had several conversations, said Mr. Benefield. He's given us an account of their relationship and how they met. As much information as he can to help us. And then a week later, Brad Callahan himself broke his silence and spoke to the media for the first time on August 7th. He was cool, calm, collected, and said he hoped that Carmen would be found soon. Quote, Jack misses his mother. I have spoken to police at length and given them all the help I can. I hope they're successful in finding Carmen as soon as possible. And then came a horrifying twist. 
in the case. On August 15th, police announced that they now believed Carmen Thomas to be dead. Quote, more than two weeks ago, we acknowledged that the investigation into her disappearance was looking increasingly sinister, said Detective Inspector Mark Benefield in a press release. In light of everything I now know, I can confirm that we are investigating a homicide rather than a missing person situation. We've come to this conclusion for several reasons. There have not been any corroborated sightings of Carmen since June 27. There is forensic evidence in her car, i.e. blood, that supports our belief that she has been killed. During this same announcement, police revealed that Carmen's 240-litre council-issued recycling bin was missing from her home. Investigators put the word out to the public that if anybody knew where this wheelie bin with serial number 014172 was, they should contact the Operation Keppel team right away. Quote, we don't know when it went missing and we won't know until we find it whether it's of significance to our investigation, said Detective Inspector Mark Benefield. But we'd very much like to locate it so that we can make our own determinations as to its importance or otherwise. Meanwhile, Carmen's friends, family and the wider community were reeling in shock from the news that Carmen was dead. They still didn't have a body, but just Knowing that, it was extremely hard for them to come to terms with, and knowing that the killer was still out there and could potentially strike again was a terrifying thought. Carmen's friend, Nikki Tremaine, said all hope is gone. Quote, The last month I've been holding on, waiting for the minute when we find you well and safe. Now my worst fears have come true, she wrote on Facebook. However, the publicity from the shock announcement did generate new lines of inquiry. Someone claimed to have seen Carmen's car in Whitford, which is a rural region southeast of Auckland at around the time that she disappeared. On August 18th, police set up checkpoints along Sandstone Road near the Hunua Ranges. They stopped hundreds of motorists in a bid to find anyone or any information that could confirm the possible sighting. And then one week later, police returned to that same area where they'd set up checkpoints to search along the grass verges on the side of the road. But at that time, they didn't tell anybody or the media why they were doing that or what exactly they were hoping to find. On 1st of September, police found Carmen's wheelie bin, although they didn't reveal that piece of information to the public until September the 20th. And by now, police had become completely tight-lipped about the investigation. They wouldn't release any information or details to the public or the media unless specifically probed. And even then, they were pretty resistant to actually say anything of material significance. And the reason is that behind closed doors, police had zeroed in on their prime suspect, none other than Carmen's baby daddy, Brad Callahan. Now, police refused to confirm this to the media, but honestly, the cat was pretty much let out of the bag when a full team of investigators descended on Brad's workplace, which was a construction site on Victoria Street, which is right in the heart of Auckland City, on September the 20th, following a week of comings and goings from police officers to ask questions. Apparently, they were tipped off by a couple of construction workers working on the same site as Brad, but we'll get to the details of that in a little bit. 
So it turns out that investigators had been keeping a very close eye on Brad Callahan right from day one of the investigation. And according to Forensics, the TV show, they always look first at whoever reported someone missing. It's usually a good place to start. And of course, those close to you, especially partners and ex-partners, history tells us more often than not, Anyway, despite not having any concrete evidence of foul play or Carmen's body, there were certain red flags that popped up very, very early on in the investigation. So firstly, Brad had been acting strange and out of character. He was spotted on CCTV footage entering Countdown Green Lane supermarket around the time of Carmen's disappearance. He was looking very shifty, very stressed. He had his arms tightly crossed and folded across his chest. But more suspicious than that is shortly after Brad arrived at the supermarket, his friend came and joined him. And it was the middle of the day, on a work day, when they would both normally be at work, they weren't known for dipping out at lunchtime to go shopping. And what did Brad buy? Large plastic rubbish bags and cleaning products. Haven't we been here before? But that wasn't the only suspicious behavior, right? So despite having a full-time job and probably quite a demanding job as a civil engineer, he had a heavily pregnant girlfriend at home and he was also looking after his and Carmen's son full-time while she was missing. He would take super long drives around parts of the North Island at nighttime. And police were able to confirm this because of his cell phone location data. So they were like, well, what the hell could he possibly be doing driving all around the countryside at night? It was weird. And it wasn't something he normally did. So that was even more strange. And it turns out that it was these nighttime drives that tipped police off to searching the areas around the Hunua Ranges. They thought, well, it's possible he's going out there to dump Carmen's body or check up on her or move her or whatever. Also, also, and man, when I learned these details through the TV show Forensics, it is nuts. Like, again, it's so similar. We'll, we'll talk about this more at the end, but there are so many similarities here to the case of Grace Mullane, where they think they're so smart. Like the killers, they just think they are so smart, smarter than everybody else. They're getting away with it, making the perfect crime. But anyway, this is really the kicker. So Carmen's phone had been active after she was last seen alive. As we mentioned, she had texted her boss on the 3rd of July, but the weirdest thing was, and she was apparently texting Brad throughout this time too, or he was texting her pretending to be concerned. Cell phone tower pings and cell records shows that their phones were always, Carmen and Brad's, in the same location. So whilst he's texting her mysteriously, she's supposedly right there too. How do you explain that one? So additional details of what the early parts of the investigation revealed. And to me, this tells that this kind of speaks to why the police were so heavily invested in the scale of this investigation so early on. Apparently, initial scene examinations of Carmen's flat revealed a significant amount of blood, same as in her car. Now, the announcement where they said, look, we actually think we're dealing with a homicide. That's because they'd just gotten the forensics back 
ESR had had the car the whole time and the forensics showed that there was an enormous amount of blood in the car that was inconsistent with human life. There was blood in her house, blood in her car, and the blood in the house had been cleaned up and obviously cleaned up. So there were some spatters and blood spatter across the wall, but there was also parts where the blood stopped and there was an oily residue that was almost blocking the ability of luminol to actually work. And then came the construction site tip-off. Now, there are a couple of events here that were immediate cause for concern with investigators. So firstly, Brad was spotted at the construction site in the very, very early hours of the morning. Now, we're talking like four o'clock in the morning before anybody else was there. He wasn't wearing a high-vis vest. He wasn't known for showing up to work extraordinarily early. And he just seems like he was acting a little bit cagey. So later that day, there was like this big pipe hole thing that they were going to fill, whatever. And when they went to fill it up, it was off. Like the measurements were off by like half a meter, something really, really significant. And when the construction workers reported this back to Brad, who's a civil engineer, he was like, oh, just fill it anyway. And the reason this raise a red flag for them is that civil engineers have exacting standards for measurements. They deal in precise, like everything has to be totally precise down to like the micromillimeter. So for him to just so casually instruct them to continue anyway, even though the measurements were so significantly off, That made people think, well, shit, what's he trying to hide? Maybe there's something down there. This made police feel they had good cause to search the area. And the second thing that caused major red flag, or maybe this is the third, is there was a very, 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 very foul-smelling wheelie bin, blue-lidded wheelie bin, by the way, on the construction site. Now, the wheelie bin was positioned outside this little caravan thing that was sort of like a pop-up for a lunchroom for the construction workers while they were working and they said it smelled disgusting it was rancid it was so horrible and because it was outside their little lunchroom the team was like oh shit we better go and deal with it so they went over to it and they like kind of opened it up and it was full full of bags and it just stunk it was just horrendous like the worst thing you could ever imagine they didn't really like they didn't poke around in it but they were like oh there's something nasty in there so they just shut it again and they moved the wheelie bin away from the area and the smell went away and i guess they just figured out that's somebody else's problem these were the reports that led investigators to actually search the site now first police drilled a hole into a concreted area on the victoria street site and then they returned to lower a high-tech camera into the drain to search the site. They also checked the timesheets for workers and asked neighboring businesses for any CCTV footage around the time that Carmen disappeared. Now, the foul-smelling wheelie bin was gone, and ultimately, sadly, despite days of searching, it did not yield anything of evidentiary value. However, police did find Carmen's wheelie bin, as I mentioned earlier. And this is a very interesting one. They found it, turns out they found it at Brad's neighbor's house, which is very strange. 
How did it end up at Brad's neighbor's house? And it had the serial number gouged out of it. But this is what's really interesting is further forensic testing, they were actually able to do a test to reveal the true serial number. They could bring it back to life. And they also tested it for any traces of blood or anything like that. And it did show traces of blood, demonstrating that it could potentially have held a human body at some stage. There were also marks on the rear window of Carmen's car that matched the wheels of the wheelie bin, suggesting that the bin had been lifted and placed into the boot of her car, and when the back door was shut, the wheels were pressing against the window. So when photographs were released of Brad Callahan talking to the police and the police searching his work site, Carmen's friends and family were outraged. They were horrified that Brad was being looked at as a suspect and they did not believe that he could possibly be responsible for hurting Carmen. They said he was a loving, caring father who would do anything to protect his son. Quote, friend Angela Doreen said he didn't deserve the media attention. Brad is an absolute gentleman, a great and loving father and definitely does not deserve this. So he clearly painted a very different picture of himself to the public, to the one that was becoming apparent to investigators. And the next day, on September the 21st, Brad Callahan was arrested and charged with the murder of Carmen Thomas. But there was still no body. All of this, all of this, still, there was still no body. And the rumor mill was running rife, and I don't even know how this rumor started, but apparently there was a rumor going around that Carmen had been dismembered and her remains had been dumped somewhere, possibly out at sea. I don't even know where that idea came from, but that's what people were saying at the time. So Callahan was interviewed at the Glen Innes CIB office before being led to Auckland District Court to face a single charge of murder. Despite his lawyers doing their damnedest, Brad also lost his bid for name suppression, mainly because by that stage he'd already spoken to the media, so there was not really any point. The news of Brad's arrest shocked everybody especially because he was the one who reported her missing. It just, it is like the stuff of nightmares. And at this point, police finally confirmed that they also felt that Carmen had been dismembered, despite not knowing where she was. So detectives ransacked Brad and Tanith Butler's home. And just one week after Brad being arrested and being put behind bars, Tanith gave birth to his second son. So how nice for them. So all of this happened. It's been three whole months since Carmen first disappeared. And then finally, the break in the case that we have all been waiting for. At a very hastily called press conference on the 1st of October, police confirmed that the remains of Carmen Thomas had been found in the Auckland Waitakere Ranges. A very emotional detective inspector, Mark Benefield, said officers acted on information that had come through that week and mapped out an area over the past three days. Quote, Information came in that gave us good cause to proceed to the Waitakere site. We always believed Carmen had been dismembered and our site examination confirms that. The scene was about two kilometres 
from the Arataki Visitors Center on Scenic Drive, down the small incline track on the way to Niho Tupu Dam Road. Now, I do warn you that at this stage in the video, the details get pretty grim and sad and nasty. So if you want to skip ahead a couple of chapters, by all means, I will not hold that against you. So court documents described the moment that investigators searching for Carmen came across the discovery of her dismembered body. The papers contain a statement from Detective Jason Edwards of the Auckland CIB in which he says he traveled to the Waitakere's on September 30th to carry out a scene examination of an area of bush in the Greenwoods Corner area. The following day, the search team, which included a cadaver dog, found the burial site, an area of disturbed clay that was softer than the surrounding area. A constable placed a small steel probe into the ground, and on the third probe, he hit an object in the ground at a depth of about half a meter. Quote, As I stood in the immediate area around the probe, I noticed an intermittent bad smell that had not previously been present. Specialists started removing the clay and the topsoil in this area, and Mr. Edwards said a plastic object was found at around 4.30 p.m. Quote, As more of the object was uncovered, it became apparent that it was a large plastic bin without a lid. As digging moved to the center of the bin, I observed a clear liquid mixed with blotches of red seeping at the edge of the bin and slowly bubbling from the center. As more of the bin was uncovered, there was a strong smell emanating from the ground and it was necessary to wear breathing masks. Two grave sites contained plastic bins in which Carmen's body had been concealed. At the time of this horrifying discovery, police described how they handled the search in the area with the utmost care, dignity and respect. It's said that even hardened officers who have been doing this their entire lives were seen breaking down in tears and having to leave the scene because it was just so horrible. In the Crown file, ESR forensic scientists said that the remains were removed from five plastic buckets and a large bin for post-mortem. Quote, The large plastic bin was found to contain a human torso. Vertebrae and a rib were collected from damaged areas of the torso for further examination. The five 10-litre buckets were found to separately contain a human head, a left human arm, a right human arm, a left human leg in two pieces, and a right human leg in two pieces. Detective Mark Benefield said that Carmen could now be returned to friends and family back home in South Africa. Somber police officers removed their hats and flanked the road as Carmen's remains were removed from the area in a hearse later that day. The site was blessed by a local komata and four of Carmen's friends came to the scene. They were seen crying and laying flowers at the scene. Mark Benefield said that the site had been dealt with utmost sensitivity and care. And he also said that the staff involved would receive trauma counseling because it was such a horrific site to have to work with. Brad Callahan fortunately pled guilty to the charge of murder, saving Carmen's friends and family the trauma of having to relive the horrors of what she had gone through as well as saving hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxpayer money for something that would have just been 
emotionally exhausting for all involved. He did also finally admit to the horrors of what he had done. Court documents stating the police summary of facts paint a horrifying picture of what took place when Carmen Thomas was murdered, including highlighting a few of Brad's friends who were accomplices to the crime and presumably escaped charges in exchange for testimony and providing information and leads to the police because they were straight up pretty much as guilty as he was. Anyway, it is very important to note that when we discuss the events of what took place that led to Carmen's murder, we only have Brad's side of the story. Carmen Thomas is not here to defend herself, provide her side of the story. All we have is Brad's word. So I encourage you to keep that in mind when we talk about how things happened. On the evening of June 28th, just the day after Carmen was last seen alive at Countdown Supermarket, police say that she texted Brad with some concerns about their son. She apparently asked him if he could come over in the morning for them to chat. So at 8.45 a.m. the following morning, he went over to her flat on Napui Road in Remuera. Apparently, Carmen told Brad that their son was being bullied at school and she had concerns about it and thought he should potentially be removed or moved to another school. Then she said, and again, we only have his side of the story. We have no idea how things escalated to this point or what took place or anything, but she told him that he didn't have a say because she wasn't his real father. And the reason I reiterate the fact that we only have Brad's side of the story is you don't just lead with that in a conversation. He had to have said something. There had to have been some conflict. To this, Brad flew into a fit of rage. He grabbed a nearby child's baseball bat and started laying into Carmen. A post-mortem examination showed that Carmen had died from eight blows to the head with her son's baseball bat. The fatal strike being a fracture on her skull behind her right ear. Now, most hauntingly, Carmen's landlady told police how she actually heard this taking place the morning that Carmen is believed to have been killed. Quote, when I heard the scream, I was sitting in the kitchen. I froze and listened to see if I could hear it again. I turned the TV off and went and stood at the top of the stairs. I stood there listening. I could hear a whimpering sound that was a soft, upset, crying sound. I could also hear a male voice shushing her. The distressed, whimpering sound was definitely a woman and it sounded like Carmen. I had no reason to think it wasn't Carmen. She then went and knocked on her tenant's door to see if Carmen was okay. There was no response and instead she decided to look inside the flat and she saw a rubbish bin had been knocked over and a clothes horse was also lying on its side. Aside from that she couldn't actually see anything. She phoned her husband and while waiting for him to arrive home she said that she saw a very casually dressed Brad in the driveway. Quote, the accused was wearing his boxes, a shirt, and was carrying his jeans and shoes in his hands. 
He told me that Carmen had vomited up blood and that she had vomited it all over his trousers. The landlady said he looked as though he had recently showered. She claims he told her that Carmen was now sleeping and that there was no point in trying to check on her because she was asleep and he wasn't going to take her to hospital because there wasn't really anything they could do, so she was just going to rest. Quote, The accused also told me that Carmen freaks out when she vomits blood. He didn't say how long he'd been at Carmen's, only that she had called him when he was on his way to work. He said something about she is normally so strong. Brad also told the woman that she could go in and check on Carmen if she really wanted to. If she wanted to see for herself that Carmen was okay. But she figured, well, she's obviously very sick and she's asleep and Brad's been looking after her, so I won't worry. So she just took him at his word. And then later that day, she texted Carmen to just be like, hey, hope you're okay. And Carmen supposedly texted her back, quote, yeah, have been really sick this week, went to hospital for a bit, headed down south for a week, will be back Sunday. Now, this report always freaks me out. And I mentioned this in my video about the Waitakere Rangers. And I must just say it again, because I always wonder, what was Brad's plan? If the landlady decided, you know what? Yes, I think I'd like to check on her myself. What was Brad's plan? Huh? Was was he going to kill her too? Like what if he what if she did check on her and she went inside and saw that Carmen was dead? What was he going to do? Anyway, more than 10 days later, Brad returned to Carmen's flat to drop Jack off, I guess, continuing the charade, and the landlady told police that Brad told her that he had been texting Carmen but hadn't received a reply and then he texted the landlady on July 13th to say that he was in fact going to report Carmen missing because he hadn't heard from her. Now this next bit, oh my goodness, this next bit, I also went through this in the last video but I'm going through it again because you, you just cannot make this stuff up but next Court documents detailed how Brad's shitty little friends were involved and buckle up because it'll infuriate you. Apparently Brad phoned a close friend. All these friends have name suppression, very convenient for them, and he arranged for this friend to come and meet him at Green Lane Countdown Supermarket. Remember we were talking about he was spotted on CCTV with a mate? was this one. He sent the man a text message that read, quote, can you please bring three black rubbish bags and a bottle of kerosene? Keep it quiet. So dutifully, the friend bought the kerosene, met Brad at the supermarket, and that's when he bought the rubbish bags because apparently the friend didn't bring the rubbish bags and he also bought the cleaning products. This is where police say Brad must have returned back to Carmen's flat and spent the rest of the day cleaning it and removing any traces of anything that had happened. He also hid the body and evidence, they say, inside the wheelie bin. Now, presumably, I guess he lived within walking distance of Carmen, but, and this is, the detail of this isn't clear, but presumably he loaded the wheelie bin into Carmen's car because he can't have walked it back to his own house. That's two and a half kilometers. It would have been a long way to be carrying it, so... Over the next few days, Brad hatched a plan to dispose of the body and cover up 
all parts of his involvement in the murder of Carmen Thomas. And part of the plan was to make it seem as though Carmen had driven to Hamilton for work and met with foul play. Police say, and a lot of this is piecing together what police assume to have happened, but police believe that on June 30th, Brad purchased a meat cleaver and bought a separate 120 litre plastic bin. I don't know if they have this on camera or not, but that's what they say they think happened. He also began to send text messages from Carmen's phone to create the illusion that she was still alive and well. To all of her friends who text her out of concern, he simply responded with, I'm not feeling very well and I've gone down the line for a few days. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they know what that means, but to police, this, all of these text messages were interesting information and evidence as well. Aside from the fact that cell phone towers showed that he was always with Carmen at the time, there were subtle changes in the language that made them believe it wasn't actually Carmen sending the messages. So she used to call her friends Hun, but she would always spell it H-O-N, whereas when Brad was pretending to be Carmen, he'd spell it H-U-N. And when she would talk about going to hospital, she would use the phrase hospital, whereas he would shorten it to hosp. Like, you know, just a few things. And they always say about circumstantial evidence, and look, I'm the first one to criticize a police investigation. You know me, not shy about that. But they say that, you know, circumstantial evidence, each thread on its own is not strong enough to support the weight of a charge or a conviction. But when every strand is pulled together it creates a strong rope so it's just all these little things that even without the specific actual DNA or forensic evidence definitely points in the direction of Mr. Brad Callahan. So of course having taken away the wheelie bin at some stage he swapped it with his neighbors which is kind of smart like put, putting it at someone else's house but he just put it a little bit too close to home. Anyway Again, it's not actually clear when Brad, when or where Brad dismembered Carmen, but at some stage he did. And after he had done so, he put all the pieces in different plastic bags. He then put the plastic bags into plastic paint buckets and 120 litre fish bins, which he then all filled with cement. So then the next step was to dispose of these buckets. Now, this is where Brad calls a second friend. Two friends. Two. We're at two so far, okay? So he phones a second friend. This guy also has immunity from prosecution, and his identity is also suppressed. He wanted to borrow this guy's boat. The friend, who cannot be named, but has known Brad since their days at Auckland Grammar, Describes him as pretty outspoken, really likes sports, always happy and loves his son Jack. He's known as Witness 70. And apparently he told the police, quote, I'd never describe him as an angry person. I mean, he shouts at sports games, but who doesn't? So the pair spoke to each other on July the 2nd, asking if Brad asked the friend if they could go boating the following morning. Quote, I said to him, it's your lucky day. His mate was already planning to take his yacht out that was moored at Okahu Bay. He was going to take it out and then get it cleaned before it was sold. That is very convenient for Brad, isn't it? Get it cleaned and then sold, like clean trail. Anyway, 
But Brad wasn't just happy with it being the following day. He wanted it to be at like 7.30 in the morning. This was a Saturday. Mate wanted to sleep in. So, quote, I thought at the time I was talking with Brad that he sounded a bit serious for him. He's normally talkative and chipper, but he was really serious. And matter of fact, there wasn't any of the normal joking. So according to Witness 70, they both met at the Okahu Bay boat ramp at about 9am the next day. Quote, when I looked at him, I could tell he didn't look himself. He was unshaven, looking pretty tired, and he looked physically stressed. He was pretty serious, so I said to him, what's going on, mate? You're right. Brad didn't say anything, so he asked the question again. Then Brad said, no, I'm in trouble. It took him a while to say anything. Then he said, I wouldn't be asking if I didn't have to, but I really need your help. I said, I'll help you if I can, but I can't if you don't tell me what's going on. Then he said, I've killed Carmen. Oh, I'm just having to, this is super unprofessional, but I'm just having to take a little pause because this story annoys me so freaking much. Apparently, according to the man, his first reaction was that Brad was kidding, and I guess it would be, but, quote, but looking at him and the way he was acting, his serious nature and just the way he was, I could tell it obviously wasn't a joke. Brad apparently told the friend that he couldn't go to police. Quote, I need your help. I need to get rid of the body. I finally realized that he's down there at the marina with the body to get rid of and that stunned me. Then witness 70 asked Brad why he didn't bury it. Quote, and he said, mate, I've tried everything. I've been out every night this week trying, according to a statement to police, which must explain Brad's little midnight ticky tours. You know, those little midnight missions that his cell phone so conveniently demonstrated to police. Quote, I can't remember exactly what I said, but something to the effect of, is it here? Or where is it? Meaning Carmen's body. And Brad said, it's in the car. Then the pair walked to the back of Brad's Subaru station wagon and opened the boot and pulled back a blanket and there were three resine paint buckets inside black plastic bags. There was also another container which he also described like a big fish bin. He could see concrete inside the bags and the buckets and they were just, according to him, filled to the brim. And that's when it sort of hit me, what I was actually looking at. I started to freak out and then I remember feeling ill and just disbelief, I guess. Then the man realized they were in a busy marina in broad daylight and suddenly it occurred to him that, holy shit, somebody might actually see them. So he said, quote, I said to him, aren't the police going to know it's you or come to you or something like that? And he wanted him to shut the boot, like ASAP. Brad then told him of his master plan to take Carmen's car to Hamilton and make it look like she had just disappeared. He was going to take her phone, text her boss, text her friends, and create this entire facade that he thought was such a brilliant idea while telling so many people about it. At this stage, instead of just freaking out and telling Callahan to... F off and then immediately phoning police. No, no, no. The friend's like, okay, well, we better go somewhere quiet because this is a very busy marina and someone might see us. So they drove out of Okahu Bay onto Tamaki Drive and then Watina Crescent. All of these are very busy central places of Auckland before pulling into a car park on an empty construction site. Now, at this stage, they even, the friend even like, 
actually tries, he said that the buckets were heavy, maybe 20 kgs, while the larger bucket, the 50 kg fish bin, it took both of them to lift it into the back. And then they drove back to Okahu Bay to launch the boat. Quote, we hadn't really said anything more at this stage to each other. I felt like I'd been hit by a bus, basically. I was still trying to digest exactly what was going on. And it just baffles me. Like the, he went along with it to this point, like it's just nuts. So the, apparently they idled the boat out to where the man's yacht was moored and started cleaning the yacht as planned earlier. So like just carrying on with like plans of the day, business as usual. Quote, while I was cleaning the boat down, I had a bit of time to myself to think and I made up my mind that it wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to help Brad with whatever it was that we had started. It was just craziness, witness Sione told the police. In the end, they both left the yacht and made their way back to land in the tiny little dinghy boat that they had gone over in. And Callahan suggested heading to the main shipping route beyond Rangatoto Island, but the man replied that it would be too busy. <laughs> the channel would be too busy. Then Brad suggested past Waiheke Island, which is ages away. It takes like 45 minutes just to get one way to Waiheke Island on the ferry. And he's suggesting like around the back of Waiheke Island, but the mate was like, nah, bro, we're going to run out of petrol if we do that. I said, we can't do this, you know. It's a crazy thing doing this in broad daylight. There's people around. The tide's wrong. The wind's wrong. What if they float? What if they don't sink? Or just whatever I could come up with to get out of it. And I don't know why he didn't just say, bro, I'm not helping you get away with murder. That's enough of a reason to just nip it in the bud, right? Like, I won't do this. This is dumb and wrong and we shouldn't be doing this. So apparently they smoked a few cigarettes and sat in silence for 10 to 15 minutes. And then the mate said, quote, I finally said to him, it's not going to happen today. I think I said to him, let's do it later on this evening. Check the tides and see what it's like then. I had no intention of going out later on. I just wanted to get back onto shore and get the stuff off my boat and have nothing more to do with it. I was just using any excuse I could. So they did take the boat out of the water at Okahu Bay with all the buckets and the fish bins still on board, according to the court files. They then apparently drove like all around different parts of like the Auckland waterfront again, but it was too busy for them to take the buckets off the boat and put them back into the Subaru without being seen. So they ended up driving all the way to this Hearn Bay Women's Bowling Club car park, which was overgrown and no longer used and gave them a little bit of privacy. And that's when they transported them back out of the boat and into Brad's car. Then Brad gave him an a burner phone with a throwaway SIM card to use so that they could contact each other super suspicious. Quote, I still couldn't work up the nerve to tell him that I wasn't going to take him out. I didn't really know what to do or how to handle it. So wouldn't you think that if he was really this whole time coming up with excuses to not participate in this horrible, heinous plan and that all he wanted to do was get away, wouldn't you think that when they finally parted ways, the first thing he would do is drive to the police station and report what had happened. Hmm? In there. He did not. He went home and spoke to Brad on the phone, his fake burner phone, later that evening because apparently Brad was trying to convince him to go out again that night 
as the friend had suggested. According to the friend, there were a lot of long silences and awkward pauses before he finally said, quote, I'm not doing this. I can't do this. I can't help you out. I'm sorry. I didn't want to be involved. I don't want to be involved. Brad didn't make a big fuss about it, just quietly accepted it, but he clearly was really disappointed. (laughs) Now, again, I repeat, don't you think even at this stage, maybe you'd tell the police or someone, you tell someone, but no, he didn't. He kept this little secret. He texted Brad four days later, but never got a reply. And then he went on a family holiday. Hmm. I guess the stress of it all, he just needed a family holiday. So that's what he did. Instead of doing the right thing and telling someone about his disgusting, shitty friend, he went on a family holiday. But don't worry, Brad's got other friends. So the friend, when he got back from his family holiday, Carmen's disappearance had blown up in the media. And again, you'd probably be thinking, oh, maybe he's starting to feel a little guilty. Maybe he's, I don't know, his conscience is weighing on him. But no, a few weeks later, Brad and his girlfriend, Tanith, went over to Witness 70's house to watch a Warriors game together. So that's fine. They're still great mates. Don't worry. Witness 70 said, quote, Nothing was mentioned about that Saturday, July the 3rd. I just didn't want to talk about it anymore, and I didn't want to know anymore. The less I knew, the better. Enter stage right, Brad's third friend, named Witness 79. That's I can only assume that that's how many witnesses were in this case, which is very interesting. Anyway, about Witness 79. Brad showed up at 79's house looking stressed and physically shaking, according to his friend. The man told police, he said, quote, mate, what's up? Have you knocked someone up? Brad replied, did you say knocked up? Nah, nah, mate, not knocked up, knocked off. He then told 79 that he'd killed Carmen Thomas, dismembered her, and tried to bury the remains in the Hunua Ranges, but the spade broke. And over the next few days, police say this is where Brad drove into the Waitakere Ranges and ultimately dumped Carmen's body. Now, again, that's all we really know of 79. But again, the fact that Brad has three freaking friends who are prepared to cover for him during a murder, like, this is why when we say, you know how people say not all men and we say, no, all men, this is why we say all men. And I also want to point out, I did a TikTok about this case recently and the comments were freaking vile. Like I had to actually go through and delete so many comments. There were so many creepy ass men in the comments defending Brad and saying that Carmen deserved it. This is why all men, my guy, you better ask yourself if your bro kills his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend, would you help him cover it up? Would you be okay with that? Would you stay quiet? I feel like we got to take a long, hard look at ourselves, huh? Anyway, not long after his attempts to get rid of Carmen's body and recruit his friends to do so, police say that is when Brad drove to Hamilton on this big mission in an attempt to dump her car, make it look like she had just disappeared or fallen foul of someone at work. He was then picked up in Hamilton by the friend who met him at Countdown Green Lane with the kerosene. Why aren't these guys in jail? 
is what I'm saying. Hmm? Why aren't they in jail? At the very least, freaking name them because I don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't want to associate with people who would contribute to this kind of disgusting, evil, devilish behavior. It's awful. Anyway, this basically rounds out a little timeline of events where Brad is texting people pretending to be Carmen and then eventually reports her missing on the 13th of July when he realizes he has to and that it has to be him, otherwise it looks suspicious. So poor Carmen Thomas was laid to rest finally on October 13th, 2010 and more than 150 mourners showed up. Among those were many of the Operation Keppel team who had been clearly deeply affected by this case and just the horrible details of it. Carmen's mother, Teresa, broke down while speaking about her daughter. She described a fun-loving, mischievous person who enjoyed pushing the boundaries of life. Carmen was also farewelled in services in Whitby, England, where she had lived as a young girl, as well as in Melbourne, which is a place she liked to frequent a lot of the time, before her body was eventually taken home to South Africa for burial. On the 30th of March, 2012... Brad Callahan was sentenced at the High Court in Auckland to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 13 years and eight months for murder and attempting to pervert the course of justice. And that, friends, is the terrible, awful, horrible, grisly, upsetting and depressing story of the murder of Carmen Thomas. Oh, it hurts my heart so much. I really do just hate that man so intensely. And it is so, so awful to think that he is going to get out. He will. Because to get out on parole, you have to admit guilt, take responsibility for your actions, and have shown and proven you're not a threat to the community anymore. You need to have a release plan, a job, a place to live, all these things. And I know that Brad is going to do those things. So he was given a really light sentence, like 13 years and eight months non-parole is super, super light. Too light, I feel, for the horrifying nature of this crime. Like, it is not like you, I don't know, he... It's the dismemberment for me and the recruiting of friends to help him get away with it. It's the calculation. I feel like they should have thrown the book at him, honestly. Yes, he admitted guilt and he would have gotten a lighter sentence for pleading guilty, but still, it is just to think he's going to be out. And like soon, like what are we now? It's 2023. He's been in jail for 11 years far out he's gonna be out soon like three two and a half years three years oh god by the way his girlfriend Tanith, she stood by him they're still together as far as i know anyway she stood by the man and oh god i talked about this in my last video where i talked about carmen as well what is it with women who stand by terrible shitty men like do better especially when she learned of what he did after he did it Ooh, what I, I just think this guy just he got way too like everything and like things kind of worked out for him it just is horrible I hope his life is 
so shit when he gets out. I hope he has such a terrible time. Anyway, enough about me. I'd love to hear what you guys think of this case. If you're still watching, comment something interesting below. Leave a little green love heart or something. Let me know that you made it this far and confuse everybody else. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for sticking by me for another long story. Let me know what you think of this case. It's a freaking grisly one. And actually it's been one I have had saved in my notes as one I've wanted to cover for truly like two years. And it's just taken me this long to get around to doing it because it's so harrowing. I really just feel for Carmen's friends and family. She seemed like just a beautiful, incredible person. She did not deserve this. Her son deserved to have his mother. And I just hope that what we all take away from this is I feel inspired to live life more like Carmen, you know, just vivacious, fun, loving, friendly. Oh, she just seems like a great person. Thank you for being here. I will see you in the next video. Hoping to post a little more frequently now. As always, if you have any case suggestions, please let me know in the comments down below and I will see you next time. Thanks for watching. Bye. What do you think of my new haircut? Do we like it? I'm still getting used to it. Some days are better than others when I tell you she has range. Sometimes I look like Lord Farquaad, usually when I wake up in the morning. And then other times I feel like it's really giving, you know?